man. So I had a, a bat where I got, I sure got rung up. This guy just threw me a nasty curveball, like just buckled my knees big time. I was like, oh, I started taking one step back to the uh, dugout. And the umpire goes, ball. And I was like, sweet. And the catcher goes, where was that? And the umpire goes, I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't see it. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's From Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Bandujo. Today's episode is with Blake Alamon, an infielder who was a fifth-round pick of Texas A&M by the Brewers in the 2015 draft who recently retired after topping out in AAA in their system. I've been looking forward to this episode for a while. When I was a senior in high school, our center fielder went down with an injury pretty early in the season, and we plugged in a small but talented sophomore to take his place. That guy was Blake, and he spent the next 10-plus years exceeding expectations. From sophomore plug-in to high school star, walk-on at his dream school to a four-year starter, and a senior signed on a discount to a guy playing in AAA. This conversation with Blake really dives into making the most out of your talent with some fun stories about playing in big SEC games and trying to grind out life as a utility guy in the minors. I'm really thankful that Blake took the time and joined me. Hope everyone enjoys the conversation. Episodes of From Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. We're over 50. They're all pretty evergreen. And if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell us what you think of the show. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. We have finally reached Omaha. We've got our field of eight set. Teddy and Joe covering that on the BA College pod and great stuff on the other pods. Future projection with Carlos and Ben is back and the 90th percentile. A lot of good stuff. Always a good time to be subscribed to BA. And with that, let's talk to Blake Alamon. All right, joining in for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm, he was a fifth-round pick of the Brewers in the 2015 draft out of Texas A&M University. One of my former high school teammates, Blake Alamon. Blake, how are you doing today? Doing good. Excited to be on the show. I'm excited to have you, man. Long time, long time coming. Congratulations on um, you, you know, gave it hell out there. You've uh, you've recently retired, joined the joined the coaching ranks, joined the rest of us just just being old. Um, want to, want to jump right into it. Uh, I know knowing you from a, from a pretty young age, you've always had aspirations to play in college. Um, you know, you had to to play exactly where you ended up playing. When did you first realize that you were actually going to have a shot at that level? Honestly, probably not until my sophomore year of high school. Um, like I said, uh, since I was five years old, no, my, both my parents are are A&M grads and I used to grow up going those games, you know, it's, brainwashing births as people like to say you grew up in the cult man yeah brainwashing birth so i always had the dream to play at AM from the time i was could watch a game at AM. so um that was kind of my goal and then you know i worked hard you know i was never the biggest guy as you would probably remember um and then i kind of had, like, i guess a mini growth spurt as a sophomore to get to a whopping five five 130 pounds and i started actually having some success i went to a camp and you know they seemed somewhat intrigued i guess i was like okay so this is might be a long shot but could be a possibility that was kind of the first like kind of glimpse i was like okay maybe a little bit more work and this is this is possible i mean to touch on your sophomore year was my senior high school you could say you know you plugged a spot during that year you filled in in center field when a guy went down and then i think you ended up taking over at shortstop arguably kind of kind of saved our year in that regard but yeah you were a small guy i can say that as a fellow very small guy um, you know, you're also, your, your dad is not big. Your parents are not big. So it wasn't like there was going to be a lot more height coming forward. You kind of knew that in early age. What, what work, what did you put in, in high school to, 
to keep the belief that you'd be able to play beyond high school and what kind of skills were you working at? Did you know you needed to do to accomplish what you weren't going to have in, in certain physical gifts? Yeah. You know, um, so like said, my dad always says, you can't pick your parents. It's kind of a joke. So I knew it wasn't going to be very big. Um, but as he's, look, he's an athletic dude, yeah, though, I do want to look, give your dad as credit. You, as you look around, you know, the landscape of baseball, just growing up, there, there's plenty of smaller guys that can still perform. So I knew those possibilities had to find my, I guess my, skill set how to make that work so at the plate i thought i had pretty good power for my size that was my goal is i may not have a lot of power in terms of i guess create other people but i'm going to have as most powers i could possibly have for my body weight use for not use my body correctly to get as much out of this body as i can and then defensively uh, my arm i wouldn't say was weak it wasn't like a can either so i didn't know that and yet i play the positions a little differently and um, cutting certain balls off in the infield and have to play the balls a little differently. So it's, I mean, it's all doable. You just have to kind of know yourself. And that's kind of something I think I've tried to do is be very self-aware in what I am as a player and what my strengths are. And, and, you know, and also what my weaknesses are. And then you use that to kind of find your way into being the best player you can be based on your skill set. We've had switch hitters on this show before, but I think you're the first that picked it up late, picked it up in high school. Walk me through that process, why you decided to, to try to make the jump into switch hitting and how it, how long it took to, to really feel comfortable. You're a natural righty. How long did it feel take to feel comfortable to step in the lefty batter's box and, and feel 100%? Yeah, so um, actually, it was, it was, I didn't do it in games really until um, late, but I worked on since about 12 years old. I was actually at Bernie High School hitting with my dad when I was 12. We were hitting and we were picking balls up after one of the buckets, and I just threw a ball in there on the tee left-handed and whacked it like jacking around. And my dad goes, oh, man, that was pretty good to do that again. And uh, like just happened two weeks later, my uh, good family friends, they had a, a big ranch in South Texas and right across the street from Chipper Jones's old family ranch. And so we got to go hit over there in Chipper Jones's batting cage with Chipper's dad, Larry. And then uh, my dad basically goes, hey, Larry, uh, I'd like to take a look at my son's left hand swing. Let me know if it's worth pursuing or not. And you obviously you have an idea of what a good switcher looks like since Chipper is one of the best of all time. And uh, he goes, yeah, man, it looks good. How long have you been doing this? He goes, like, two weeks. He goes, oh, yeah, that's really good. It's natural. So that was kind of green light. So from that point on, every time I'd go hit with my dad, we'd mix in, like, maybe one bucket left-handed, just kind of jacking around. And I would do it in some games in, like, Little League or trial ball when we got up by a lot or something. And then my dad really wanted me to do it in high school, but I didn't want to because obviously, I was, like I said, I was a smaller guy, so I was a lot weaker left-handed. So I'd make a lot of solid contact, which not, wouldn't go very far. Being left-handed was kind of weaker side took a while of the strength to get there. And then right-handed, I know I had a lot more hand-eye coordination and natural power. So I just was very, I guess I would get frustrated if I would go hit left-handed and not get a hit. And I was like, man, I would crush that ball right-handed. What am I doing, what am I doing over here left-handed? So that progressed. Uh, again, I was dead stuff in right-handed all through high school. And then I went to uh, an A&M camp my junior year and they started kind of unofficially recruiting me a little bit and then the last day of bp i told them i could hit left-handed they go let me see it and i at that point i guess i had not hit left-handed in probably about two years so the gross spurt and strength that i had i guess my left hand swing the ball started jumping a little bit and i happened to hit like unbelievable in this dead arm bp at AM left-handed and they go hey so that looks really good we'd like you to keep doing that so we're recruiting you but if you come here we would like you to switch it so that was kind of like well if they're gonna want me to switch it i need to start doing it and then, uh, so the junior year after, this is kind of funny, the junior year after um, that camp, I, I was like, all right, I'll try switch hitting. I told Chuck Foster, our head coach, I'm going to try switch hitting the uh, start of the year. I started this year off three for 13 left-handed, and I got, like, super annoyed. I was like, dude, this is stupid. I could be getting raking right-handed. So I told Chuck, I'm bailing on, I'm just hitting right-handed. And he goes, all right. And I told my dad that. My dad was all upset with me. But then 
I proceeded to go 19 for the next 23 right-handed. So um, I was like, yeah, I don't think I'd be hitting left-handed anymore. So I did that right-handed all the way through. Um, and then I ended up committing to AM my after my junior year. And so my senior year of high school, I was like, well, I'm already committed to AM anyways. Might as well, you know, do it for a year. I guess because of the fact that I knew where I was going, I was relaxed, whatever it was. Ended up having an unbelievable year hitting left-handed in um in my senior year of high school. And then just kind of went from there. But yeah, the answer to your original question of how long it took to get comfortable, I probably told my I don't think until I was like maybe in double A where I was like, all right, I feel better left-handed than I do right-handed. That, that's how long it took, probably. So before that, I was always kind of like, man, I'm grinding left-handed, but throw me the bat right-handed. I'll go up there and I feel more comfortable. But probably took to about my first year in double-A tough. I was like, man, I feel better left-handed than I do right-handed. So it took a little while. That's like, yeah, that's like six, seven years of baseball yeah. in, in general. That Wow, that's a, that's a lot longer than I thought it was going to be. Um, So you mentioned you commit to A&M after junior year. In in that junior and senior year, it here in, here in the San Antonio area where we grew up, you're all area. You're the Express News Player of the Year, which is our our, our paper here for for folks who don't know. It's you know the the guy who's usually the Player of the Year gets uh, in our area a lot of times gets draft attention, gets a lot of you know gets a lot of recruiting attention. The guy my senior year got drafted. Uh, the guy after you, Ralph Garza, he's pitching the big leagues a little bit this year. Um, you had that early commitment. Did you get the kind of attention from? other schools anywhere else that tried to pry you or tried to, to reach out or were you just so laser focused on A&M that there was really no other, uh, no other colleges coming to call or that you would show interest in? Yeah. I mean, I think a little bit of both. Um, so I kind of blossomed a little later. Like I said, I didn't do the big, you know, travel ball circuit where I went to these showcases. So I would like to think that my sophomore year coming popping on the scene, I was, pretty unknown commodity in terms of college recruiters. Um, basically, I, I joke, I, I pretty much recruited myself. Day, you know, I went to four camps. They only saw me play outside camp twice. Um, I had some some people talking to me, you know, small schools, UTSA, obviously, local school, and then some other mid-majors. And Baylor was, you know, talking to me a little bit. But like I said, it's lifelong dream to be an Aggie. So as soon as they even offered anything, I, I was actually preferred walk-on. So once they offered me a spot on the team, I was like, yeah, I'm in. So did that and didn't really, you know, and I had a huge senior year, which I think if I had been uncommitted at that point, I think I'd have a lot bigger um, offers coming in my way. But at that point, I was already committed to Daniel. That's where I wanted to go. That's where I always wanted to go. So I wasn't too concerned about it. But I think it was more of a perfect storm of me going to the school I've always wanted to go to. And I didn't really have a ton of success till kind of later on. So at that point, it was kind of a, already at a place. And all the good numbers, everything I put up was kind of like late. So the offers didn't really roll in until after I was already committed. Before you got on campus, like you had, you had put up these, these big year, big numbers, your junior and senior years, but you are, you're still, you're still a walk-on. You're still a preferred walk-on. The team that you're going into A&M, um, you know, at that time, big 12 school about to be an SEC school guys drafted every year um, on that team, especially multiple big leaguers and the, the team that you were going to come into. How did how did you feel about yourself as a player, your chances of contributing early, contributing at all before you got to college station? Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty confident in myself, my abilities. I've always had to be um, with my size, but that was like probably the one of the only times in my life. I remember I was going in there pretty, pretty hesitant. Like, Ooh, I'm kind of nervous. Like we got Tyler Naquin coming off of all American right foot. I'm like a walker, Ross Stripling, all these big leaders. I'm like, man, this is so it was a little eye-opening because, like, I knew I could play in terms of my class. I got to play with some other guys I was going into my recruiting class with in the summer. 
held my own there. I was like, okay, I'd like to compete with my freshman class, but that's what we're in. Well, these guys are junior, seniors, and 21, 22-year-old grown men who've already put up All-American years at college. So I was a little shell-shocked going in there. Um, and on top of that, I got moved to third base. And uh, my freshman fall, I've never played third in my entire life. And, you know, I like to pride myself being a utility player, but third base is a little different than second and short in terms of ground balls. Balls come at you hot. Um, the first, I was about to say, do you remember the first rocket you yes, ever got hit? It at was you? the first inning of the first inner squad. A guy named Matt Yingle, who ended up playing triple A with the um, Marlins. I'm playing double play depth, like even with the bag. He hits a one hop rocket off my forearm, off my chest, ricochets into the stands. And I was just sitting there stunned, like what just happened? So, yeah, that was eye opening for sure. And then my first ever inner squad at bat was off Michael Walker. I punched down three pitches. And then my dad called me after the first day. He said, hey, man, how's it go? I was like, well, not good. I was like, uh, I don't know if every pitcher I face is like that, but if they are, I'm not sure I can hit this level. It was pretty opening, but it turns out that Michael Walker is pretty phenomenal. Made a lot of pit hitters look stupid. So you got a little easier after that. But, yeah, my freshman fall was really bad. Uh, I think I hit about 140 at-bats. I made probably about eight or nine errors. I was just mentally kind of just sped up, overwhelmed. Did not go well. Um, my exit meeting in the fall, yeah, they basically said, like, hey, that was not good. Um, uh, we'll see how the first couple weeks in the spring go. We have more inner squads. If it doesn't get any better, we're probably going to ask you to go to junior college and try to come back next year because I don't think you're ready to play at this level right now. So that was eye-opening. Um, went home for Christmas break and, you know, had, like, kind of a look-in-the-mirror moment, like, reflecting on why I was so poor. And I, I kind of came to my realization. I go, that was on me just being nervous, making it bigger than what it is. I don't think anything that they did was I wasn't good enough to do it. I was just like, I guess, so nervous to be on that stage with those guys. So I tried to go back in the spring, like, okay, you played this game your whole life. It's the same game. Mount's still 60 feet away. First base is 90 feet away. It's just the same game. It's not a big deal. Try to calm down, just be who I was. And end up having phenomenal two-week spring scrimmage deal. Um, working away in the state of A&M. And then uh, I just so that was the first goal was just trying to yeah. stay. Like, when did you find out you were actually going to be able to stay, and they weren't going to ship you to? I assume Blinn. Yeah. So yeah, they they I told me I was going to stay after probably right on the going into our last weekend of inner squads. They're like, hey, we're going to keep you here. We're not sure if we're going to redshirt you or not yet, but you're going to stay here. Um, and I was like, all right, cool. So then my next goal became I just want to try not to get redshirted, see if I can get any type of playing time at all. Um, and so we were having, you no, know, I keep working I keep just doing really well in practices and stuff. And, um, about seven, I mean, it was the seventh game no sixth game. We're playing the second weekend of the season. We're playing Holy cross and we're beating them, you know, pretty bad. And, uh, it's like the eighth inning. And all of a sudden I'm not even pinching. I'm like, oh, I'm enjoying it. Being a freshman. Like, oh, this is awesome. We're all we're kicking someone's butt. This is great. And then like the eighth inning, uh, coach Childress is like, Hey, I'll on, get a bat. You're pinch hitting. I was like, oh, so then, you know, I'm like, oh, crap. Now it's real. I'm about to get my first at bat. And um, I get out there and I think I struck out looking after I found like four or five pitches. And I was like, ah, all right. So first bat, K, whatever. At least I got in the game. Wasn't expecting anything after that. Our second baseman at the time, I've been struggling offensively for the first couple of games. And he's a great guy. He's one of my better friends now. He's an awesome teammate. One of the best guys I've ever played with. Um, so on Sunday morning, I never was playing. But I was always come check the lineup to see the – um, what BP group I was in and all that, just, you know, just a habit. You check the lineup. So I went down there and checked the lineup about 8.30 a.m. on a Sunday game, and I'm starting at second base, batting nine hole. I'm like, oh, my God. So I was just came out of nowhere. Text my dad, like, hey, I'm starting. He goes, what? I go, yeah, I'm starting. He goes, all right. So he got all excited and 
I was pretty excited. They came out of nowhere. I did not expect to start within that fast based on how I, my fall had gone. It's credit to Coach Childress, which uh, I always respected. He always says the he we're preferred walk-ons. Well, you're you when you're on the field, you're in campus, you're the same as a scholarship guy. We're treat you all the same, and you perform your play. So he did tell his word when it came to that. So I appreciate him. You know, he did that with multiple guys. Ross Stripling was a preferred walk-on. I'm not sure you know that. So we had a lot of really good players that preferred walk-ons. But anyways, so I get to uh, the dugout. I'm about to go off for the first, you know, first pitch with everyone. Coach Shrills told me, like, he goes, hey, you nervous? I go, no, no, sir, I'm excited. He's like, all right, well, just don't let me ever take you out of lineup. That's your goal. Make me play you. And that was very motivational to me. I was like, all right, so just go in there do your job. And the first that bat I got up there, I got asked to sack bunt. Drop down, really good sack bunt, look up, no one's covering first. So I got my first college hit was a sack bunt that no one covered first on. Uh, next at bat, he's got on first base, two outs, end up lacing a line drive to left field. Guy goes first, third, next guy drives him in. That was, you know, a big run like in the fifth. And we were kind of, you know, it was five to three, kind of sputtering. And then we end up, you know, running both after that. I get taken out for defense substitution like late in the game. So that was kind of my first game. Then I played every game the rest of our freshman year because after that game kept forming until I got mono and missed the Big 12 tournament and the regionals. But until that point, I played every game. So it's pretty incredible the how fast it all kind of went from being counted out, about to ask to leave, to maybe not register it, to, oh, you're in the game, and then take advantage of it, roll with it. How many starts make you a starter? Like, how, how many times do you have to play in a row to be like, okay, I'm I'm when I check the lineup, I'm going to be in there? Man, with uh, with that team, how how deep we were, some vision players, I, I never felt safe, to be honest with you. I was like, okay, I've had a good two-week stretch, but now maybe two bad games in a row, I'm, I could kick a week break here because – he was known to change lap a lot unless you like just wanted to do. So, I mean, that whole freshman year, I really never felt safe until he got to probably, I don't know, May. And I, at that point, been playing pretty consistently for about a month and a half. But yeah, man, it was, I never felt, I just never took advantage, took it for granted. I was so grateful to be playing that much as a freshman. And um, I believe I could do it, but the amount of success I had that fast was, was surprising to myself. Anyways, so, I mean, it was, it was a pretty cool experience. And it's especially the turnaround I had from the fall from being almost, asked to leave to being the freshman that made the most starts of anyone in the freshman class. So it's pretty, pretty crazy to have the turnaround happen. We talked about the baseball adjustment, but I, as the first person on the show who went to a and I just, I need to ask what are, you, you guys seem to have to learn a lot as far as how to conduct yourselves uh, in the football stands and uh, become the uh, arguably to outsiders, the most annoying fan base in uh in college show the loudest and, and, and most annoying, how much work goes into the, the midnight yell stuff, learning all the chants. Um, how much do like, do athletes participate in that? Um, so for, for uh, normal students, um, they have this thing called fish camp, which is for all freshmen, incoming freshmen, uh, the first week before school starts. And that like, they have, um, group leaders and they sign in different groups and they basically take you through all the traditions at A&M and, um, like, taking your hat off in the bookstore because of the memorial and uh, paying tribute to the veterans, uh, the yells and the games or distribution here. Like there's a, like all these little things, like there's a statue of uh, you put a penny on for good luck for a test and stuff like all these little, you know, kind of quirky things. And, you know, I get uh, it's culty from the outside, but man, growing up in it and being a part of it, once you're a part of it, right. And I'm sure you'd ask many other Aggies, even some that were not growing up, but I, we had teammates from Florida and, Oregon that would come in, they thought it was the coolest thing ever. So, I mean, 
um, it's, it's really quirky and it's, it's, it can be culty, but man, when you're a part of it and then they're the ones backing you, backing you up as a, the fan base and being a part of it on football game days, it's, it's a really cool experience, but there's a lot that goes into it. And I get some of it is a little quirky myself. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's a little weird, but it's awesome to be a part of. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of taking through all that stuff, but as athletes, you have the option to have like an athlete only fish camp or you kind of just like pick it up as you go. I mean, I actually end up telling my teammates a lot of stuff because I grew up knowing about all of it. Like, Hey, what's that? So I tell them like, okay, so I actually did a little bit of, you know, coaching, I guess, on how, what certain things meant and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was, it's cool. It's a lot. And I, there's still some stuff today that they're doing now that's new that I don't even know. I'm like, okay, I don't know what that is. But I have to ask someone. So it just keeps ever evolving. I think. We're recording this after, after supers, um, A&M obviously on the way to Omaha, uh, at time of recording, we saw the past two weekends that crowd is always loud. It's always, you know, Olsen Field or Bluebell, always packed. As as a freshman and even even as you're older, is it more nerve wracking taking at bats at at that ballpark, even though it's your home fans, when they're always loud? There's always a ton of people there. There's a, the you got the students, you got the the diehards, you got the the message board folks just just going hard, or is it more nerve wracking in in an away hostile environment? Uh, for me, I, I think it was, I, mean, I never got super, I'm my freshman, I never got super nervous, but it's a little more intense because you want to please the, uh, the home fans, man. You want to give them something real crazy about for me. I love playing on the road and embracing that because I love my biggest, all my favorite things in the world is to you know have a big hit in Alex box and have the whole stadium just go silent. Like I love just being kind of a villain in the sense of being the guy on the road in this hostile environment, doing something really big to you know beat that team or push the head to where the whole stadium just kind of sits on their hands for a little bit. I used to love doing that. So uh, I never got super nervous on the road. I, I took it as a challenge. I thought it was very exciting. I love being in those environments. Um, at home, same thing, man. It's just, you feel, you feel this need. You have to, you have to, you know, have so much success and, win these games and you, you, you want it so bad to do it in front of your home fans. So I guess that's where nerves comes in a little bit. You just want it so bad to, you try to almost try to do too much at times, but uh, yeah, man, it's an awesome environment. I was actually there last weekend when they beat uh, Louisiana in the regional. And it's, it's awesome to see how packed is getting. And um, I think they have plans to maybe expand soon. And the fans were awesome. The ball five chance were, were rocking and uh, the bubbles were going, which is, I don't know if you know, but that the bubble is something that, my team, my senior year in college, we actually started that. Now it's like a thing. So that's pretty cool to see that still going. But, yeah, it was pretty cool, man, to see what they can do in Omaha. I'm actually heading to Omaha Saturday, so I might get to watch them play. Uh, I could have a chance to watch a Texas in Omaha. That would be pretty incredible. Oh, that's that's going to be a bloodbath. So after your freshman year, you guys make the move to the SEC. Obviously, the, the A&M football team that fall makes a big-time impression on, on the SEC, one, one man in particular. Uh you guys making that switch suddenly your conference schedule, you're not playing Texas in conference anymore. All those other teams, you, you know, you're moving. Is there, was there a big noticeable difference in an environment in gameplay in, in anything, or was it just, Hey, new schedule, let's go try to win a different conference. Yeah. I mean, uh, we were told, I didn't recognize anything different. So you get into it in the midst of it, uh, obviously. So the first thing that jumps out is the facilities in the SEC, the stadiums are just their weight. they, they care a little more, I think, about baseball than some of the Big 12 schools. Now, some Big 12 schools have unbelievable facilities, but top to bottom, the SEC, they pack out five, six, seven thousand people. You know, great facilities, like a lot of almost minor league park type stadiums. They're awesome. Um, so that was the first thing that just every place you go is nice with a lot of fans. That was that was awesome. Um, the second thing is just just the depth, really. That's the only thing I noticed. I try to tell people that, like when they say, "What's the difference between the SEC and Big 12?" It's not the fact that the best teams in the Big 12 are 
any worse than the best teams in the SEC. It's the worst teams. Like every week in the SEC is just like that team's good. You don't play good, they're gonna beat you. Like in the Big Twelve, no, I mean there was a few teams there when I was in that year that, no offense, you show up, you're, you're probably gonna win two out of three. They're just not very competitive. Um, like for instance, my senior year, there uh, Tennessee, ironically enough, who just you know had a rough weekend. They were they finished last in the conference when I was a senior. And they finished 14th in the conference, didn't make the SEC tournament. And I think they had six players drafted off that team. I think four of them in the big leagues. So, like, that's the talent on the worst team. That's It's just kind of – you got the worst-placed team, the Sunday Stars, still pumping 92 out of the pen. Like, that doesn't happen a whole lot in the Big 12. You get past, like, the top three or four teams. So, it's just more of the grind. I know they say that, and it's cliche, but it really is. Like, there's just no breaks. Every week in the SEC is like, okay, another series, we got to step it up, or we don't play well, we're going to lose. So um, that's the biggest jump I saw. But the top tier teams, Big 12, are, are just as talented, just as good as the top tier in the SEC. It's just kind of the, the one through 14. There's not really huge gaps. So that was, it was very, it drained you a little bit, you know, having to have that kind of effort and that kind of, you know, mental, you had to focus every weekend. It's, it's draining. It's, it's, it's a grind for sure. So that's kind of the biggest thing I noticed. That sophomore and junior year, you're doing the utility role thing. You have starts at third, second, shortstop did you feel better at a certain spot? Like, do you walk into a game day, see where you're slotted and suddenly feel better or worse about how you're going to play based on where it's at? Um, I always feel more comfortable playing middle infield short and second. Um, I still, this day, I've played a lot of third now in my life. I still don't love third. I mean, it's still grind. I'm over there. I'm like, okay, we got to grind this way through here. Just doing things stupid over here today. Try to make a, all the routine plays, but I don't ever really feel comfortable over there. But no, I don't think I ever thought my day was going to go better or worse. It just kind of changed my mindset. Like I'm playing, you know, second. I'm like, okay, I felt a little more at ease, a little more comfortable at third. I'm like, okay, I got to try to I start thinking through, okay, I got to try to play this ball this way or certain balls that at third base gave me trouble. So I was like, okay, I'm going to play that ball today. And um, but as long as I was in the lineup, get be able to hit and be a part of the game, I was always pretty, pretty excited. But yeah, I mean, it's utility role, something I've, I've carried all through the through pro ball too. It just kind of, you know, is what it is. And you have to accept uh, that's the position you're playing that day and you got to make the best of it. So if I'm going to play third base that day, I'm going to try to be the best third base I can be that day. So that's kind of the mindset I took on uh, going forward, my utility role. Playing at A&M, especially starting at A&M, affords you the opportunity for for some good, good chances of playing summer ball, good places to go. I know after your freshman year summer, you at least signed with the team in the Texas Collegiate League. But how, especially in those early years, did you go about making the best use of your summer and summer ball time? My first, my freshman year, uh, freshman summer, I was going to go play in Louisiana and Texas League. Um, I actually got mono the last week of the season in the Big 12 tournament going into the regionals. And with that, I lost, I think, 15 pounds. And so I had put on about 15 to 20 when I got out of high school freshman year, which I didn't have all of to put on anyways. And I lost all that back. And so they kind of usually said, hey, you're coming off that mono. You lost a lot of weight. Why don't you just stay here in College Station and, like, lift with our strength coach, put on weight, get stronger, kind of more take care of your body instead of your game. So I did that, ended up putting on, like, 20 pounds. And then my sophomore summer, I actually did go play in the California Collegiate League. Um, so I went to California. That was a lot of fun. I played in San Luis Obispo. Um, where Cal Poly's at, got to play against Santa Barbara and other teams. That was a lot of fun. So junior, uh, sophomore summer, I actually went out there and played. So that was a good time. But the uh, freshman summer staying here was more so about just trying to get my body back and getting weight on and trying to, you know, improve that part of my game because that was kind of things they thought was holding me back a little bit of how, I guess, smaller I was and losing that weight after that sickness. So I had to try to beef up a little bit. 
And then walk me through that summer after your junior year, the uh, the Cape experience. Talent level is as good as anywhere. Talent level can you know compete with an SEC weekend. What is game intensity like? Yeah, man, that was strange. Because obviously, you hear about the Cape all year. You know, Cape, Cape, Cape's the best. You know, all these players and going up there, I was super excited. We know what to expect, and um, yeah, the players were unbelievable. I saw so many good arms, um, just guys pumping. But it was a very weird environment because the stadium up there, like bad high school fuels the grass is like six inches long i hit a ball in the gap that like the ball landed and stopped and i didn't roll because the grass is so long like it's wild and then the fields are terrible um lights terrible um umpires are local high school umpires so uh they're funny man so i had a a bat where i got i sure got rung up this guy just threw me a nasty curveball like just buckled my knees big time i was like oh i started taking one step back to the uh dugout and the umpire goes, ball. And I was like, sweet. And the catcher goes, where was that? And the umpire goes, I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't see it. So, like, <laughs> they just, like, they didn't. Another guy, like, missed a, a call again. And this guy's pumping 98. And the umpire, and the catcher's getting on. I'm like, where's that at? And then the, the umpire's like, man, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying here. I've never seen anything harder than 88 in my life, okay? I'm trying to try my oh best my here. So, that's, like, what we were dealing with. So, it was kind of funny. But um, the cape itself wasn't the kind of what I expected in terms of, like, I didn't realize how wooded Cape Cod was. There's trees everywhere. And then the beaches were very rocky and cold. And I'm like deathly afraid of sharks. And that's where Jaws is based out of. So my butt wouldn't get in the water anywhere. So, um, but it was a good time. My teammates, they were awesome. I actually shared a room at a host house and twin beds with Harrison Bader, who's the center of the Cardinals now. He's my roommate. Um, we could, we shared beds. I could reach over and touch his bed. So I could spend the whole summer in the same room as him. Um, I had other big leaders in that team. Uh, Richie Martin, who played shortstop for the Orioles a little bit last year. Um, uh, Brett Sullivan, I think he signed a big league deal with the Brewers and got traded to the Padres. Um, I've had a couple other you know guys on those teams. But, yeah, it was, it was a cool experience playing as other, other players. The talent level in that league is, is incredible. And it was so cool. Just You go take BP, and there's 15 scouts there for BP to watch you in some backfield uh, Cape League game. They're all out there watching BP and throw around the diamond stuff. So it was a really cool experience. And say I was able to do that, it was pretty awesome. With those scouts, you're you're heading into your senior year. Suddenly, you become a more attractive draft prospect in terms of just senior sign. You get, you know, you if you put up a good year, you can save someone some money and be a um, you know be a productive player. When you're hitting in front of the scouts in the Cape, are there, you know, it, do you how do you how do you kind of stay within yourself and not try to you know juice up a couple little balls and and hit some extra BP home runs and stuff like that? Like, how do you? How do you keep calm in front of scouts? You know, uh, it's, I guess it's cliche, but I, just, you know, I, I try to think they're there. Just, you know, you go about your, your normal BP routine and you, you be yourself and do what you got to do. I mean, you don't try to get out of who you are. Um, Cause that's when I've learned from the failures and experience in the past that every time I try to be someone I'm not or do more than I'm capable of, I usually tend to have it not go very well. So, through those experiences, like, okay, whenever you get into kind of a situation where you're a little nervous, whatever, just be yourself, do what you do and kind of let that take care of itself. And like your game will speak for itself. Don't do anything more or anything less. Just, you know, kind of be who you are. So I just try to have a good BP, good professional BP, spray the ball with the yard, um, you know, barrel balls up, run off the rounds, you know, whatever they were, oppo, hitting or whatever, you know, run off the rounds and try to do that and, you know, show that I was able to play the game a little bit and be professional. So, that's kind of the approach I took because, again, it goes back to the whole self-awareness thing where I knew I'm not a home run hitter. I don't go and crush balls on BP, especially where I hit off over the lights or anything. So 
I would show off my skill set, which is my ability to handle the bat, spray line drives, you know, be a complete hitter. So I, I kind of took that approach to my BPs. When you got back to campus that fall of 2014, do you remember when when you first learned about the the new lower seam baseballs or when you started hitting those? Uh, yeah, they told us that when we got back that they were changing the balls to the minor league balls. That was uh, apparently supposed to go a little further, which would, they think they did. So but I, that was awesome. I think I like the way they feel better, too, just throwing them around. And obviously anything as a hitter that let the ball go further, I'm, I'm all for. So, um, yeah, they, we played with those in the fall a little bit. I did notice a little bit of difference. Um, but then by the time it was the spring rolled around, you almost forgot they were new balls. Just kind of just played the game. But, yeah, they uh, I think it did help juice up some of the offense in college baseball in general a little bit going into that 2015 season. Yeah. Well, you had gone into that year with one home run. You, you know, your senior year, you're putting up, putting up numbers, you're hitting home runs, you're taking Carson Fulmer deep twice. Um, I know it, at that point you're in the middle of a postseason run, but bringing it back to the draft question, you played in front of those scouts in the Cape that summer, the, the draft is close now. You've, you know, by the time you get to the, the postseason of your senior year, it's pretty much cemented. You have put up a good senior year. You have a great shot of getting drafted. Do do conversations happen? Do you know? Do you talk with an advisor? Do you talk with your parents? Do you talk with scouts? Like, w- how do you kind of balance? We want to go try to win a national title. With I would like to get drafted. Yeah. So obviously, playing professional baseball is like my goals and you know, I could even pick up a baseball bat so that was you know the fact that it was that close and that I knew it was a real possibility like at that point like I said by time the regional super regionals it wasn't the fact that if I was gonna get drafted it's more of like when and for how much so that I knew that was a real possibility so I knew that was kind of already there I wasn't really super concerned with it at the time because being a senior being my last uh, kind of college go around and at that time we were having a great year and winning a lot. My, all my focus was in winning and trying to go to Omaha. So I put all the eggs in that basket and I'll worry about the draft later. Um, but yeah, during the meantime, you have meetings with scouts to come in, you have to fill out some questionnaires and, you know, they kind of get your take on what we're looking for as a senior, like how much are you willing to take or you want to go in the top round, save money, like kind of just get your take on things. And I didn't have an agent or an advisor at that point in time. Um, so I was kind of doing all my own following my parents along as I, as I went really I was pretty new to the whole process I'd never been drafted before so just kind of answering their questions and basically saying yeah for everything I've been told I'm going to get drafted just kind of matter of when and how much I'll be able to get as a senior so um and then we had that run the regionals and then super regionals uh, that last game where we lost in the 17th inning um that game ended about 2 30 a.m and then we drove back to College Station. I got back about 6.37 a.m. I got about two hours of sleep, woke up to a phone call from a brewer scout at 9.30 in the morning and asked me, he's like, hey, this is uh, Brian Sankey with the Brewers. He's like, we're looking to draft you today. He's kind of curious on what, what you're looking for money-wise, what you would take, and off of that, worked it out. And then, and then like the next hour or so, I was drafted. So it's kind of a crazy whirlwind from losing 17 innings at Omaha to being drafted within literally like six hours. How do you figure out what you would take? Like when it when it comes down to that, because they're look they're obviously looking to go under slot so they can pay someone else. Like, how do you come up with with the value? And is there any thought in your mind of just saying, "I'll take whatever you can give me"? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's kind of based on what I said. I go, "Hey, I'm not stupid. I know I'm a senior, and all this stuff works. Like, I don't have a whole lot of leverage here." So I go, "No offense, I'll take the most you can possibly give me. I, I don't know what that is, but I obviously want the most I can get. But like, I'm I don't know what that is to you, but yeah." So he, he threw out a number. He goes, "We take that." I go, "Yeah, absolutely, I'll do that." He goes, "Okay, so." It's pretty funny. So they had to get permission. He goes, he goes, uh, you sure you're gonna take that? So I don't have a problem, you know, talking about it. So my slot was three hundred and forty-eight thousand dollars in the fifth round. 
I ended up signing for $40,000. And so he, uh, he threw out, he's like, Hey, will you sign for $40,000? And I was like, yeah, all, all I've been hearing was like, you know, 10 grand, maybe if you're lucky. He didn't tell me what round though. So he's like, Hey, we're going to draft you soon. Like we sign for 40. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. I've never heard anything that high at all. And so, uh, he said, well, I need your parents to like, you know, a okay that you're just talking on your butt. He's like, if, if I draft you and you don't sign for that, I'm going to get fired. I was like, no, I go, <laughs> I go, no, sir. I, I'll sign. I got it. He's like, all right. So, and then sure enough, literally like two picks later, he drafts me in the fifth round. And I looked at my dad, I go, well, crap. And there was a fifth round. I might've asked for a little more. Um, but so it was like, super exciting though. Just to have the fifth round draft pick. Um, it was pretty cool. And it was, it was an exciting day to, you know, see that your dreams are being fulfilled and, the crazy thing about the draft is too. I signed for forty thousand. I still think I was the third highest paid senior in the entire draft. So it's pretty crazy how the seniors signed stuff works. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a really awesome experience. Like I said, whirlwind because literally eight hours prior, I was ending my college career at two a.m. on the walk off um, in seventeenth inning. So it's pretty pretty nuts how that all kind of just flipped in a matter of a couple hours. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty nuts play at the end of that super regional. If anyone wants to. Uh... Versus, uh, versus TCU in Lupton. But yeah, I, I got to imagine the, the getting drafted part is, is a pretty big pick-me-up. But how far does, does 40000 go in over you know a seven-year professional career? Well, I'm uh, pretty frugal, so I actually have never touched it. So I still have all of it. Um, I've tried my best to use everything else I have, I'm giving private lessons or my paychecks and minors and scratch as much as I can. So... It's gone a long ways for me because I didn't have any big expenditures in terms of I didn't really buy a car or anything. Or, so, um, yeah, it's lasted me a long time. Fortunately, it's been a nice little kind of, I guess, safety net for whenever my next step in life comes. I have a little bit of a cushion to help something. So, uh, yeah, it stretched me a little bit. So it's been nice to have for sure. Well, you go from playing in the Super Regionals, uh, you know, to the uh, to Helena, to short season. How those, especially those early years, um, you know, short season, low A, high A, the difference in lifestyle between life at Texas A&M at, an, you know, an SEC school, a well-funded SEC school, the difference in travel, the difference in diet. You mentioned the, you know, the the weight you put on. I imagine a lot of that was muscle when you got to college because of what you guys can do there. So the diet, the housing, uh, that that adjustment process was that you you mentioned frugality. I mean, that's minor league is a great place to be frugal. But how did you adjust mentally and physically to the difference in lifestyle? Yeah, it was it was pretty different. So getting off the plane and and hell in the Montana, I was like, uh, first of all, I've never been to Montana, and it's it's beautiful up there. But you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. I was like, where am I? And then you take us to the to the park and it's a, a local American Legion field. We share with the local high schools and travel ball teams and stuff. And it's pretty, it's got the sweet backdrop, the mountain, in the background, but let's just say the surface is not very, very good. And the first ground ball I got routine ground ball bounces over my head off, like in the center. I'm like, Oh my, I'm just terrified. This is horrible. One of the, one of it looks like uphill. It's got like a little ditch in the middle of the thing. It was, it was eventful. And then the locker room was like this old travel trailer, um, I'm pretty sure the visiting one had like a uh, mice infestation at some point. Like it was, it was definitely a different atmosphere coming from, you know, A&M and Olsen and private jets to away games. Now you're taking nine, 10 hour bus rides and getting up the next morning and playing. It was definitely different, but fortunately had some success there. And I got called up after 10 games. I got to go to Appleton, Wisconsin, which was, which is very nice. Uh, they're staying there. That's our low A team. Great stadium. Averaged about 6,000 fans. Awesome surface. That felt like actual, you know, minor league baseball. It was pretty cool to play in front of those fans. But uh, yeah, the l- lifestyle 
until high end, we had host families, um, didn't always have a vehicle, so it's hard to get around, bus trips, living out of hotels, food was scarce at times. I think that first year, in two months, I lost 13 pounds playing minor league baseball. So um, you don't realize it until you literally play every day. Like we had a stretch, we played 23 days in a row. Um, so yeah, it's definitely different. There's no breaks. You're just like, man, I used to always, I just used to laugh. Uh, cause growing up and watching big league games, I'd see like I watch a game. I asked like, so some superstar wasn't playing. My dad's like, always getting a day off. So like, what does he need a day off for? Like this is baseball. It's supposed to be fun. That was the first time I was like, okay. Now I know why these people need days off. Cause this is, it's a grind. It was definitely different, but, uh, something that I adjust to and yeah, it was fun though. It was, it was a big opening experience. It's kind of either changed the way you go about your business in terms of getting yourself ready to play with stretching and taking care of your body. It was came a big, uh, definitely a bigger part of my pregame, uh, I guess, routine instead of just saying, okay, I'm young, just go play. I got a break tomorrow and kind of, you know, go with it. So it was, it was, it was fun. It was definitely different though, the first two years or so after coming from AM. When you get to focus on baseball 24-7, you cut the school aspect out, don't have to worry about that, don't have to worry about anything, what's going on in campus. When you are when your job is baseball 24-7, what from your game gets noticeably better or what can you give a little more attention to that you might not have been able to in college? Yeah, just you get a lot more reps in everything, right? So you just fine-tune everything. I think the biggest jump I made towards the middle to end of my professional career is I got a lot better defensively. Cause it's just every day I work taking tons of early work ground balls, working on my feet, working on my footwork. And then offensive, same thing. You kind of hone in on a routine and what you like to do every day. And you just do it every day. And you have your 30, 40 swings with how you're doing it off the tee. Then maybe some flips and then um, taking your batting practice. And you just kind of really take ownership of what you do pregame and who you want to be as a player. And you kind of just, you really fine tune all those things and just, just playing baseball and getting those reps every single day, you don't even realize how much better you're getting while you're doing it. But looking back, like I was like, man, I feel like I didn't improve at all one year because it just kind of ups and downs of performance in the season and mentally draining. But then you look back like, man, I was way better at this than I was last year. That came way easier. It's just it's just the constant, I guess, reps that just you noticeably just every day just keep working on. You just, by the end of the year, you've made monumental improvements to certain things. So um, I don't say anything particular. Maybe my defense, my feet in particular, um, working my feet in the infield. But, uh, yeah, just oh, oh, everything, really. I really took ownership of routine. Like I said, I got to pro ball. And in college, you're always told, like, okay, we're doing this, this, this in the cage. And the first day I went to the cage in rookie ball, um, the hitting coach said, all right, what do you want to do? And I was kind of like, uh, I don't know. You tell me. I like, guess kind of how like, you tell me. He goes, no, that's not how this works here. He goes, you need to find a routine that works for you, what you want to do every day. So that kind of something I've – I figured out in pro ball, I kind of, you know, took things I liked, tried things I didn't like, and it kind of worked out what I thought would help me the most and took ownership of that routine. And I kind of figured out what I want to do as a hitter, what I wanted to get better at, and kind of work from there. And so that's kind of, as a player, you take ownership of what you want to be and, and you do it every day and then you see the, the improvements on the field. So in college, especially when you were playing kind of the last bastion of this era of, you know, um, Team teams leaving their starter in as much as possible, throwing the same guy. I mean, especially you see now in regionals, you know, you get to those 
those fifth game, whatever they're throwing out the guy, they have to throw out the guys who threw like three innings all year, the guys who can't throw strikes, stuff like that. So in college, they're leaving guys in a lot. Starters will go seven, eight innings, especially when you were playing like coaches run their horses and pro ball. It's a lot different. Um, you know, even if a guy could have five shutout innings, he hits his pitch count, he's done guys, you know, they're, they're switching out those arms a lot more as a switch hitter. Did you find, you know, does that add any sort of difficulty level getting switched around multiple times in games and stuff like that and having to, to work off different arms, not seeing a guy three times through a start, you know, only seeing a guy once or twice before you're then seeing your next at bats are against different dudes. Yeah, switching sides of the plate during a game never really bothered me a whole lot, but uh, only seeing guys once or twice is was difficult. Like, you you get a starter, like, after a second at bat, like, okay, I'm seeing this guy good night. I'm on him. I got him. And then they go switch, throw some guy at those 98 with a hammer. And you're like, okay, well, now I got to readjust my whole plan. It's got a lot harder. Um, so it was more difficult that way because you start formulating the plan, right, of how you're going to attack this guy. And as soon as you do that, they switch pitchers. So it's, it's kind of tough. But on the flip side, playing um, – series and concerts you play the same teams for the most part a lot so you'll have 20 games against this team so maybe the first series this bring the reliever you'll know them, but by the third time you play this team and third series like you kind of have a book on all the relievers so even if they switch pictures like that you still kind of have an idea of how he attacks you um that's where scouting reports come to play right you, you go through your your hitters meetings with what this guy throws what he, what he likes to do his tendencies and that helps a lot so yeah, the first time seeing a guy is usually pretty tough. Once you get a book on him, kind of see him a few times over the course of a couple of series, even though they switch pitchers, which can kind of be, you know, that day, maybe you're seeing that one guy pretty good, but you have an idea of how that guy's going to attack you, and that can help, you know, kind of alleviate some of that difficulty in terms of how much they switch pitchers. As a senior sign, as a utility guy, you're trying to make, you know, you're trying to do the same thing you did early in college, play a couple of positions, make yourself useful how much do you feel like in an organization's plans you are like when you're in college, you can talk to your coach, you can talk to an assistant coach, get kind of a sense of where you're shaking out. Like in, you know, your freshman year of college, they say, Hey, you got to play better. We're going to ship you to junior college, like that sort of thing. Where, where do reassurances come from in pro ball? Um, I don't know. Cause I don't think I got me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so unfortunately for me, just by happenstance, I got drafted. Um, and the GM that drafted me retired the year he drafted me like right after two months after. So then David Stearns comes in and he's not the one that drafted me. So already I'm behind the eight ball because I am not one of his guys. And so I saw that immediately in the sense of my first year, I went from rookie ball for 10 games to full season, a ball for most of the season. And the next year I come back for spring training, I am now going to high A, but I am slated to be sharing time, basically playing behind a guy that I played in front of in rookie ball. This guy skipped low A. I guess our GM, you know, had more liked him better or something. So that's the first time I'm saying, okay, well, nothing based on performance here dictates this. So it was kind of strange. I basically was up to a battle the whole time with that new GM. Kind of, I don't think I really was in his plans, but I kind of forced my way in a lot. I actually had some meetings after a couple of years in Double A. We were like, dude, because we put you in some very, I guess not, um, I guess not very forgiving situations. We put you, you know, in some challenging spots, and you keep finally way to line up performing he goes he goes you're he said he said this in a, in a very you know, complimentary way was you're kind of a pain in the butt like because we don't know what to do with you because we don't really have you in our plan if you keep like putting yourself out there and make us have to consider you and you're kind of you know kind of being a pain so i don't think I ever was really in their plans in a sense so that was i had up about my whole minor league career in terms of having the fourth win lineups take every advantage i could um you see the business side of things and you know being a senior signed guy with not a whole lot of money invested in me uh i didn't get you know, as many opportunities as other people would who had 
big numbers invested in them. So it was definitely different. Um, but I tried to get take advantage of every opportunity I could and force them in there. And it was it was definitely a grind. Took a toll on on you mentally, knowing you had to perform every chance. You know, you put a lot of pressure on yourself, knowing, okay, I got like one start this week. I got to do something with it to get a chance, maybe start next week. So um, it was difficult, but it, it's uh, it was fun. And it was very challenging. It's kind of I'm not, you know, I'm sure everyone goes through their hardships and uphill struggles, but um, it's kind of been the story of my whole career in playing sports. So I embraced it as a challenge and I took on the adversity and tried to make the best of it. How does that kind of mindset that everyone has to take as far as making the most of chances? Obviously, you know, some guys get more chances than others, but just in general, especially you get to double A when you're 24, that for, for every, most everyone on that roster, at least a lot of guys, at least guys who, you know, are going to get those chances, you get you have a hot month and a half and some opportunities make their way via injuries or whatever, you know, it, it could change your life. You you're two calls away. How does that reflect in a locker room? It, it, as far as team goes, it's obviously not going to be the same as, you know, one team, one goal, trying to get to Omaha, whatever. What is the vibe around a double a clubhouse when guys are trying to get their ABs guys are trying to get their work in guys are just hoping to, to get that call versus, you know, the, the thing in college where everyone wants to get drafted, but you, you want to win first. Yeah. It's very different. I talked, explain some people I know that are playing college, like, Hey, what's my league ball? Like, like the vibes are a lot different. It's still, it's still fun. It's still baseball. It's a grind with so many games. So they do a lot more quirky things. Keep you loose, you know, joke around the dugout. I'm in the clubhouse playing cards, hanging out, listening to music. Um, but obviously we're all competitive. So we all, we would like to win, but yeah, it's, it's not always, you know, the top of the, like, so the, let's say we lose a game and, so-and-so goes four and four, four with two doubles. He's not exactly in, in a bad mood after the loss. He's like, oh, I had a good game. So, or vice versa. Sometimes you see even where we'd win, the pitcher gives up a three spots, almost blow the lead, but now his ERA took a beating. So he's like, not like, dis- not like physically, you could tell he's kind of annoyed though, even though we won a game, but he kind of gave up a lot of runs. So it's just a little different aspect. You kind of know that going into it. And now obviously there's some issues where you get a little bit too vocal with your selfishness and sense of like, well, you know, Everyone knows you're kind of looking for your stats, but you don't want to be over the top with how you, I guess, portray that if, after win or loss. So there was a few instances where that came up where we had to kind of like tell the guy, hey, he's chill out a little bit. But um, it is different. But, I mean, it was, it was still had some team camaraderie there. You spend so much time with those guys on the buses and, and everything. So it's still a lot of good stories and fun. But, yeah, the, the whole atmosphere was, was a little different. Not so much, you know, team first. It's more so we're just a bunch of dudes here chasing a dream together, hanging out and, Hopefully a couple of us make it. So after you get to the high minors and you, like you said, you're, you're scratching for ABs, you're trying to find playing time, um, you know, making yourself valuable, making yourself useful. It's kind of apparent at that point, age 25, 26, you're probably not going to be Mike Trout for a guy in your shoes. What's the dream there? Um, you know, when you're a kid, you dream of being a hall of fame or all-star or whatever, when reality kind of resets itself when you're 25, 26, what were, what were your dream? What did you hope for your next five years in baseball? Yeah, so playing against a bunch of those guys in double and triple A, you know, you play against a ton of people that are in the big league. Some of them are all stars, some of them are, you know, everyday big leaders. So I got to the point where I was like, all right, self-awareness again. Like, I realize I'm not going to be an all star, but I've seen the guys that made it. Like, I know I can play in the major leagues and I could be a very solid utility player. So help, help someone out on the bench, possibly. If uh, someone gets hurt, I can fill in for an extended period of time as a starter. Like, I, I was pretty that said, like, I was capable of doing that. And that was kind of my vision and myself. Going forward, just give me a chance, big leagues. I work my way into being you know, a solid bench guy, and I'll be a guy to give you a couple spot starts or giving the guy a day off or something. So that's kind of the role I envisioned for myself going forward there towards the later half of my 
professional career. You're 2019. When did you find out that you'd be going to San Antonio? Um, so in spring training, um, I was, they was possibly be going to dry out spring training. Uh, I'd been in Delhi for two years at that point. And, um, uh, the manager, Rick Sweet, he, he's a big fan of mine. He was fighting for me hard to come to San Antonio with them. But at that point with the roster, I think we ended up signing a couple like former big leaguers that on minor league deals, like late in spring training. So that kind of bumped me out triple A. So they sent them to San Antonio instead. And I think, uh, uh, like Tyler Saldino, Corey Spangenberg were kind of later signs and kind of bumped me out of there. So um, I went to Biloxi again for the third year in a row. I was only there for like a month. I um, was a little annoyed about it because I, you know, I felt in my mind, based on what I've done the previous two years, I deserved to, you know, be moved up out of that level at that point. And so I was waiting for it. And I, I found out that one of the – there's a couple injuries on the missions. Um, so two guys got hurt. So they had some – spots come up and I actually hit a, I got a start blocks. He hit a homer that day. And then the locker room, I kind of clubhouse come in and they called me in the office. Like, hey, you're going to San Antonio. So I was actually on the road in Chattanooga. All my stuff was still in Biloxi. So I flew to San Antonio, told my parents and I was there the next day. So it all happened pretty fast. So that was about a month in. And then I got a couple chances to play. Actually went to Des Moines on the road in Des Moines for one game. They went to San Antonio, but um, yeah, so that was all, that's cool. Got to come there for a little bit. Got a couple of starts. Um, Got the couple – I pinched it a lot, and then the injuries came back. The, that's where things got a little frustrating. I got put on the phantom DL, as they call it, quite a bit that year. So it was, it was pretty mentally draining and frustrating year for me, though, unfortunately. Do you – when that's happening, when you're on the phantom DL, which for, you know, it basically means you're not not hurt per se, but they're just basically kind of stashing you. Yeah. Um, do you feel kind of like a captive in a sense, you, you have real, you have no say over it unless you can get released. Like what, and you're in San Antonio, you're in your hometown, you're living with your parents. Like how, how do you kind of process that? And how do you stay, how do you stay motivated when you're getting purposely stashed? Yeah, it was, I'm not gonna lie. It was tough. That was probably the most mentally challenging year of my baseball life. That was, that was really hard being at home, um, playing for a team I grew up going to watch games of, um, having friends and family always say, Hey, what comes see you play? And I'm telling them like, well, I'm not playing. It was kind of in a way, almost like a little embarrassing. I was like, Hey, what comes see you play? Like, Oh, I'm going to be coaching first base, not wearing cleats. Cause I'm not on the roster. And then you pitch hit when I went. So. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it was hit or miss. Like some days I'd like, you tell me the morning of, Hey, you're active today. And then next day, Hey, you're inactive again. Like it was just so, I never knew it was coming. It was, it was mentally draining. It was really hard to stay motivated. I just tried my best to, be as raised as I could when I got my chance to I could and then you start seeing things where even when you get your chance and, and perform it doesn't really mean it's not going to change anything that was the most frustrating part for me I think um like my first start I went we were uh, playing Brown Rock and I went two for four with a three-run homer of Forrest Whitley who was like their stud from Alma Heights and I didn't get another at bat for a month and a half after that so I had a great game, which I think would earn me more playing time. But really, at that point, and so many other moving parts in AAA with guys coming down from the big leagues or, you know, trades and stuff. It was just – it was a very weird year, and it was very mentally taxing on um, realizing you don't really have any control. So it was very hard for me because it's always been my mindset, like, give me a chance and I'll find a way to make it work. And then when that's not really an option anymore, like, it was very hard for me to process. So that was a tough year for me. I enjoyed playing at home and playing for the mission. It was an awesome story, but – probably mentally it's probably the most challenging, most difficult years I've ever had in my baseball career. You, you go from that. Then we have the COVID year, no minor league season. 
to 2021 year in Indy ball from just a joy perspective, compare your season in Lancaster uh, to your season in triple a, your hometown. I had way more fun playing Lancaster because just being able to play every day was awesome. I have not been the everyday starter for probably about three years at that point. So just getting to play every day was, was a blast. I mean, uh, getting out, out in the field and you want to find build some rhythm at the plate, you know, getting four or five games in a row versus pinch it here. Don't hit for a week to pinch it. Like it's just, it's hard to build any type of momentum at the plate. So that was awesome. And then um, I always told myself in my head, like, kind of certain milestones I thought I was capable of doing if I had played every day and I was able to kind of, you know, achieve some of those things to kind of like prove myself correctness. It's like, okay, I really can do that. So that was, that was kind of fun to be a part of. And, you know, you see some former big league guys too out there. So that's a really unique environment too. seeing some of those guys, maybe a tail in their career, but they're all very, very nice guys. Talk to them very, you know, and to have taken on a mentorship role with a lot of even players on other teams. So it was a cool experience around those guys and getting to continue to play baseball and enjoy the game. With that season, you're also in, in building a rhythm at the plate. You're also learning the automatic strike zone. Walk me through, you know, your your process when it comes to that. How you feel about that? Should it be implemented at the game's highest level? So it, they automated the, the Atlantic League strike zone that year. They based it on your height. So I tried the cheat system a little bit and told them I was five eight because the height the strike zone was going to be the top of the zone would be fifty four percent of your height. And the bottom of the zone is going to be like 20, I think 27 or 26 percent of your height. And but that's when you're standing straight up vertically. That doesn't take into account like your crouching, your stance or anything. So and on top of that, the plate, uh, the strike zone was a ball and a half off the plate each way. So it was very wide. So and on top of that, it's like imaginary line. So if the ball just like clips the line as it's coming through, even on the outside, barely nicks it. That's a strike. And you have a pretty bendy knees stance. If I yeah. And so there's so many balls that were getting called at my letters or like curveballs coming out of the sky that like it was crossing at my neck, just nicking the top of the zone or getting called strikes or backdoor breaking balls or strikes. or, And it was just it was so difficult to kind of trust your eyes at that point because at this point you know playing all the games i had in my life i felt like i had a pretty good idea of where the strike zone was at and then so many times like brow the ham like, oh nope ball and then they catch it and they're calling it a strike i was like i was just so confused at what my eyes were telling me versus what they were calling strikes so it made you second guess yourself a ton and i personally didn't like it maybe second guess my own strike zone a, a ton i chased all my pitches and i normally would have not chased because i just didn't know if the strike or not so it's very difficult to me now if they calibrate it maybe a little smaller maybe i don't know but catching the ball behind the plate too like you see catchers really whiff the ball you know they, they did take their glove way out of the zone like in the dirt they're calling it strike because it's irrelevant it's how it crosses the plate and stuff so just the whole thing looks weird and doesn't really look like baseball and i'm not sure a whole lot of people in our league really enjoyed it actual baseball players so i'm not a big fan of it but it was definitely different definitely something i had to learn it was a, a whole new experience at the plate was there a noticeable difference with the pitcher farther back? Because they implemented that as well. Yeah. So they tried to do that, I guess, to give yourself uh, the hitters more reaction time. So they wanted more contact. So hopefully make a 96 mile fastball like look like it was 92. I personally didn't notice a huge difference how slower it looked. I did notice that once they moved the mound back, though, they started throwing a lot more breaking balls because they move more. There's more time for it to move. So two seamers and sinkers are really moving. Cutters cut an extra three inches. You know, just everything move more that's something i noticed but overall in terms of velocity i didn't notice a huge difference um the pitchers i talked to said they were 
this is the same thing. They noticed a lot of their pitches, they had to start their balls in different starting points based on the breaking balls because it was moving more. And then uh, they said the first couple starts, they were really sore, I guess, extra extension for another foot or so. Um, but after that, they said it was a huge difference. Just release points were different because they had to go farther. But that was about it. So I'm not sure that was a huge success either. But, I mean, I could get the idea in a sense. But uh, I didn't notice huge difference. Just ball moved a lot more. Well, you, you wrap up that season, you put up good numbers. And then, um, you know, as we said at the top of the top of the episode, this is your first year out of baseball. You just said, you know, what, what was the linchpin and finally deciding to retire? When was it time to move on? Uh, you know, um, the, the lifestyle money ball, uh, you know, not getting a whole lot of money, paycheck to paycheck, always living out of a suitcase, never know where you're going to be. Um, I put it out there, tried my best to get re-signed this year and, um, by an affiliated club and just simply pan out with the shortened teams. Now they've cut the teams, um, the less players, lower drafts. There's not even many spots available to get signed for, I guess people are not already in an affiliation, uh, affiliated team. So spots were hard to come by. I kept putting it out there with my agent, but didn't get much back. And I got offered to go play independent ball, indie ball again. And I was just like, you know, uh, I think it's time to, if I don't get it back in the affiliated ball, maybe move on and try something more stable, something I start building a career with instead of trying to chase this dream. Like, uh, I'm all, I'm all for playing and it's been my life goal my whole, my whole life. But, um, I always told myself, I only, I don't want to play just, just to play in a sense. And for me, I would like to play all I still see a pathway to me making it to major leagues. And I didn't really see that path anymore. So I figured it was time to move on. And, and now I'm trying to get my name out there and trying to put my, my, uh, name to some, some, Coaches I know in college, I like to get into college coaching, and hopefully that's my next career moving forward. I like to impact the game that way and still be in a competitive environment. So I guess that's the route I'm try to go next. And it was tough, I and mean, it's still every day I, I watch a game, I still miss it. I still question myself. Like I know I can still play, but it is what it is, and it's kind of you know something I had to come to grips with. So if you could go back, give yourself a pep talk at 22, day after signing, what would that pep talk look like? Uh, man, just don't let the ups and downs of the business take away the, the fun of the game because the business side of, of the minor league game can suck the fun out of the game for you if you let it. And a few times for a couple of streaks or series of uh, games or so, a couple of months or so, it, it did. Like, I love baseball death and being between the lines is awesome, but there's a couple of times where it, it did suck the joy of a little bit. So just kind of let, you know, in a sense of what they say, ride the wave, let the let that business side of things be that side of the things and just play baseball man enjoy your time on the diamond because i said like one of these days is going to come to an end you're going to miss it so um turn 30 in a couple of weeks so unfortunately i got to play professional baseball at 30 years old but at the same time i'm still going to miss it every day so just kind of enjoy the game let the other stuff be the other stuff the outside noise and just enjoy your time because it's going to be gone one day quick rapid fire for you and then i'll let you get out of here favorite minor league ballpark oof that's tough. There's a lot of especially Triple A. So, sneaky El Paso is an unbelievable ballpark. I loved El Paso. I've heard incredible yeah. things. El Paso, El Paso is actually an unbelievable ballpark. I was a big fan of El Paso. Um, Round Rock, super nice, obviously. Um, I'm trying to think of some lower level ones though that are good. Uh, Jacksonville is a great one too. Actually, in Double A, I love Jacksonville. So I would say probably Jacksonville, El Paso, Round Rock, uh, Oklahoma City is nice. So, yeah, a lot of those are good. Favorite away SEC ballpark? Oof. So, I got two. Coolest atmosphere and unique is Mississippi State. It was awesome. The This before they renovated it, so they had, like, basically we call, you know, the left field lounge out there with all, like, the misfit, you know, stations that they built, which is awesome. They were cooking barbecue. They gave us barbecue after the last game. That was an awesome experience. 
Second one, also kind of personal because my grandpa went to LSU. My my family's Cajun, but I love playing at LSU with Alex Box. It was an awesome environment, seeing all that, especially when we played them. It was one versus two. So that was really cool. I got a lot of my extended family come to that game. So I would say LSU and Mississippi State. Your junior and senior year postseasons. Junior year, uh, regional game against Texas, but in Houston. And senior year, super regional against TCU in Lupton. Which crowd was wilder? Probably TCU and Lupton. That game was just way more insane. Um, I mean, the Texas one, we were on on fumes at that point coming back. And we, we played our butts off to get to that point. And um, but you know, might make some some Texas fans angry here, but Texas fans really are never that rowdy to me. I mean, we played in front of them, like, yeah, we had that huge rivalry, and it's it's tough, but they never get super super loud, super rowdy. They don't talk a lot of talk a lot of mess or anything. So, um, yeah, I I mean, I love playing Texas. It's fun. It's a good environment, and it's but man, TCU they were they're on the level, man. They're kind of they got a, they were a little chirpy. They were talking. That game just was meant more going to Omaha. That lasted long, so I'm sure there was a few adult juice boxes being drank for a while. So they they were pretty chirpy. That was a pretty good environment. That was pretty fun. It's pretty intense. Best pitcher you ever faced? Oof, man! In college or professional? You call it. Who's who's the best guy? You step in the box. Who gave you the most trouble? That's tough. Uh, well, I faced Walker Bueller at Vanderbilt. He was pretty nasty. Um, I'm trying to think. I can't remember this dude's name. I don't know how I remember his name, but I remember he came in. He was in double A. He was throwing 100 miles an hour, but he came in through eight straight sliders. Every slider was 93 miles an hour. It was the nastiest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, for some reason, I can't remember his name. Um, so I'll go with him, whoever he is, unnamed pitcher who's disgusting. Un- unnamed guy. Um, and then I'm trying to think of the oh, I faced this kid in triple A. Same thing. Name is Dylan Maples. For the Cubs. Oh, yeah. Dude had the nastiest slider I've ever seen in my entire life. Could not see it. It moved four feet and it was 92 miles an hour. So, yeah, he, he was – and I had to pinch off him. So, come up the bench cold, that was not fun either. So, those those are some guys. There's so, there's too many to name on. There's so many good guys I just go on the list. But, yeah, there's this – I've faced a lot of good pitchers. That was, was pretty awesome. Yeah, it was just pretty awesome. You watch TV now. You watch a big league game. Like, oh, face that guy. No, that guy. It's just really cool to see all those guys having so much success and, you know, saying you were in the box with those guys. It's pretty cool. There's so many of them to name. Last question. Everyone gets this one. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? Oh, man. Probably a few. I don't know. I can't sleep on buses. I, I don't know why I can't. So, so many nightmare. Like, you, you wait. picked a tough career to not be able yeah, to sleep I know, on buses. Yeah, I know. I did. And so, I, you know, you get done with the game at, you know, 9, 30, 10 o'clock. You have an all-nighter, 12 hours. You got a game the next day. Um, double A one time, we played a home game in Biloxi. Finished at – started at 6.30, finished about 11. We left on the road about midnight. We drove to Jacksonville, which is about an eight-hour bus ride. Rolled into Jacksonville about 8.39. We had a day and a game at 3 Sunday. We had to be back in the stadium at noon. So, we only, we basically – Bust all day, had three hours until we'd be at the field again for the next game. And our rooms weren't ready. And so we had to sleep in the lobby uh, or like in a little makeshift, whatever, dining hall or whatever it is, or conference room. So I slept on the floor there for two and a half hours. Didn't sleep all night because I can't sleep on buses. And I go play a game that day in Jacksonville in July. So super hot. So that was pretty miserable. That is, it's, it's amazing how many we have had like that of long night rooms aren't ready sleeping in a dining room game that day. That is, is, is minor leagues as it gets Blake Alamon. That is all I've got for you. Congratulations on a career well played. Thanks for coming on from Phenom to the farm. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's awesome. You got it.